Friends, our friend Lori Krauss, who is the Executive Director of Presbyterian Disaster Assistance, wrote and posted a prayer just a day ago following the events in New Zealand. And it's a little bit lengthy, but I think every word is worth hearing as we begin our time together. So let us pray. God of our weary years and our silent tears, we are shattered by the deaths of 49 Muslim neighbors in New Zealand, cut down in the midst of Friday prayers. We are horrified, angry, despairing. We struggle with the knowledge that our prayers alone are not enough. Our silence in the face of intolerance and fear is complicity a fear that we do not know, a way forward that will help, an emptiness. We have been here before too many times and we know we will walk this bloodied path again. What can we do with such fear and anger and longing that can bind us together rather than further tear apart the fabric of our common life? We are failing one another and we are failing you. O maker of the universe, our mercy, our justice, our peace. We pray for our neighbors in Christ's church and for our whole broken and heartbroken world. In this hard season of violence, death, and extremism, each one lost is a child made in your image. Each survivor is beloved to you. Each afflicted community is part of your commonwealth. We lift our prayers for each life lost, each family bereaved, the worshiping communities whose fabric has been violently torn asunder by bullets and hatred and fear. We pray for ourselves that this wounding, this outrage will not fade from our minds before our hearts are broken open by your passion for mercy, justice, and love. Make us ceaseless in our resistance to xenophobia and tolerance and fear. May the knowledge of your divine image given to every living being warm hearts that have grown cold and invigorate our desire to embrace our differences and celebrate our belonging in the whole human family. Make the waters of our tears nourish the river that flows through the city of God and the tree of life that is for the healing of the nations. In the name of the God who is one, we pray. Amen. Our gospel lesson this morning comes from the gospel according to Luke, beginning at the 31st verse of the 13th chapter. Let us hear God's word. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. He said to them, Go and tell that fox for me, listen. I am casting out demons and performing cures today and tomorrow, and on the third day I finish my work. Yet today, tomorrow, and the next day I must be on my way because it is impossible for a prophet to be killed outside of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. 
How often have I desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you, and I tell you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Though the history is not formally recorded, we do know that the Seneca tribe of Native Americans lived in and around Rochester until they lost their claim to most of this region through the Treaty of Big Tree in 1797. Settlers began to establish a city by the early 1800s, and by 1821, Rochester as a city was established. Churches began popping up all over the place, as what historians call the Second Great Awakening took root in this region, and we became known as something called the Burnt Over District, the burning over being done by the Holy Spirit moving from the East Coast westward across the frontier. The major denominations at that point were the Episcopalians and the Presbyterians. And in 1827, discontented by the ministries of either First Presbyterian Church or Second Presbyterian Church, a group of businessmen primarily established Third Presbyterian Church, us. 1827, 192 years ago, We've moved twice since then, first to Clinton in Maine, and then in the, in the 1850s, and then jumping the Genesee River, following the money in the 1880s. We've been located here ever since. If nothing else today, please remember the real estate adage, location, location, location. That is, who we are, and what we've done has been shaped and formed by our context and this context, this city. That our story and the city's story are inextricably linked. A corollary of that affirmation is the prayer that some of the things we've done, we hope, have served this city for the better. Have made a difference. Even now, with the city of Rochester rapidly changing, growing richer in some ways and exceedingly poor in others, with business evolving and education suffering and racism deepening and opportunities presenting, and with the big church out there and this church here evolving as well, our context continues to be this place this community, this city, this land. Now some of you come from down the street to get here, and some of you come from the outskirts of Monroe County and beyond. No matter, we all come here to worship and to serve and then to be sent back out. So context matters. And this context matters in our sense of call and in our discernment of what's next. 
So fast forward from 1827 to the early 1900s, my predecessor, Paul Moore Strayer, spent many a Sunday evening preaching in the Union Halls, not far from here, down on the river, connecting with working men who would have felt uncomfortable, if not downright unwelcome, in this place on a Sunday morning. Fast forward another 60 years and moments many of you will remember. Racial tension rising in Rochester, rioting. This church supported something called Friends of Fight. Sponsoring the visit of community organizer Saul Alinsky to help organize against Kodak. A controversial action in the city and one that caused no little tension within this congregation. Engagement. Engagement in the urban issues of economics and poverty, race and equity. From the beginning of our story down to this very moment, engagement even when messy and uncomfortable. So how will we continue that legacy now? And why? Now, for some reason, there's been a plethora means there's been a lot of books on what is called urban ministry coming out in the last year or so. We've included a long quotation on the bulletin cover from one of them. In the face of rapidly evolving urban realities, realities with which we are very familiar, we have never had, writes Michael Mata, we have never had a greater opportunity or a more urgent responsibility to be the church in the city, to engage the city with the best of our belief and our behavior and our commitment. Great opportunity, urgent responsibility. We have choices to make. One is to see the city as an evil place and therefore a target for conversion. Bad things happen that must be confronted with the values of our faith, the city as an adversary to be defeated. Another choice is to live above the city, beyond it, to kind of helicopter in for worship and to helicopter back out without dirtying our hands or our spirits, perhaps shrugging our shoulders along the way. Now, as you might guess, I believe that neither converting or ignoring are faithful responses. So what's the alternative? Well, the alternative is what we have done, what we have sought to done, to do. Sometimes effectively, sometimes not, sometimes gracefully, sometimes not, since 1827. To engage, to relate, to connect. Engage the city in all of its beauty and in all of its hardship. Engage humbly with the best of our faith, as self-aware as we can be, not to convert or to reject or to ignore, but to build. To build relationships with the city, with its institutions, and most importantly, with its people. Now, we're not a neighborhood church in the way that is sometimes understood. I describe us as a regional church, metropolitan, cosmopolitan, and yet we have a location here 
And our calling is to engage it faithfully and fully. To act like a neighborhood church, even when our neighborhood is big and expansive, to know our neighbors, to know our neighborhood. How do we do that? Well, most days when I come here or go home, I go the indirect way. I take an alternative path. I will go west or south or north in order to eventually head eight minutes east. I will drive up and down neighborhood streets. It's not very efficient, but it's meaningful. Try it. Or show up at things. There are so many events, gatherings, and places you might not otherwise go, music and art and drama and sports or community gatherings. Go where people gather, and especially people who do not look like you. Sit in the back and listen, and if you need suggestions, let us know. If we're choosing to engage, or more aptly said, if we are following God's call to engage, then let's do it. And many of you do already, perhaps through ministry from this place, tutoring at a school, engaging our neighbors through dining room ministry or food cupboard, participating in a habitat build or showing up at Cameron. And you know what I'm talking about, that such engagement is transforming for you. Just this past hour, we shared the work of Great Schools for All, an effort we launched that seeks to bring a vision of equity to public education. That effort is a natural trajectory of our legacy. Or the Rock Salt Center in the South Wedge, a re-envisioned Presbyterian site that will host visiting mission teams, share food with our hungriest of neighbors, and serve as a kind of cultural headquarters for arts and education. That effort, too, is a natural trajectory of our legacy. It's Lent. In our Gospel lesson, Jesus is warned to leave the city, for some are plotting to kill him. And the warnings are on point. Yet Jesus knows. He knows his fate, and he knows that his fate will unfold in the city. And he gets up on a kind of a hill, and he looks down over the city, and he grieves. He weeps. Jerusalem, he says. How often have I desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? And you were not willing how often, he is saying, have I tried to share my vision of justice and compassion and reconciliation with this broken city, and you have rejected me. And so he does leave for a bit, but he will come back, he must, not only to follow his call, but to be present, to engage with the place where his good news is needed most. Peter Choi writes that urban ministry approaches have tended to view cities as places marked by 
compromised good at best and unchecked evil at worst. Choi writes, for those who have eyes to see, however, the city is also a site of boundless human ingenuity and possibility. Boundless human ingenuity and possibility. And then Choi asks, how can we discover a city's dignity and grace? Dignity and grace, how can we discover that? I have lived in three big cities, Chicago, Indianapolis, Rochester. And whenever I read this passage from Luke, I imagine Jesus looking over them, as he did Jerusalem, and weeping. And then I imagine what it would look like, and how we might work toward a day when Jesus would look over our city, and smile, be joyful, discovering dignity and grace in choice words, a, a beautiful cacophony, a true neighborhood, marked by justice and hope. That's our story. And that's our calling. From the very beginning of the church 2,000 years ago to the very beginning of this church 200 years ago to this very moment. Risen Lord, we will sing in a few moments, Risen Lord shall yet the city be a city of despair. Come today, our judge, our glory. Be its name. The Lord is there. Amen.